Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to episode 87 of the Old Food Basics Discover podcast, the show where we learn something new about our incredible industry on every single episode. My name is Derek Craig, and I'm thankful to be recording another episode and thankful for all of you listening who keep this show going. Today, we're going to be talking about wellbores, and the word on the street is that they're they're pretty deviated and uh, subsequently kind of devious, <laughs> so causing all sorts of problems um, over the life of the well for the operators and and all those kind of involved with it. So we're going to be diving into that problem and helping to understand that better and hopefully come out with a way on how to get on top of this existing problem. So we've got a few experts from Gyro Data to help lead us through that discussion, and they'll be joining me here in just a moment. And I don't know about you guys, but ever since Thanksgiving, uh, every everything since Thanksgiving is basically just a big blur. Um, so I've been playing serious catch up, and and the good news is that it looks like we're on track to have a lot more interesting topics heading our way soon. Uh, we've got our course authors back on track, uh, authoring a bunch of additional courses on a whole bunch of different topics. Uh, partnerships are getting rejuvenated, and there seems to even be a renewed kind of eagerness overall with companies working uh, with us. So it seems, I don't know if Thanksgiving dinner just sat on everybody's uh, stomachs through the <laughs> through December, but uh, it seems like everybody's kind of jumping back in the game here in January. And uh, maybe this is the year of $100 oil again. Who knows? We'll, we'll, we'll find out about that one. But uh, anyways, lots more to come. And as I've said before, we've only scratched the surface with Wolf of Basics. And the wonderful thing about this industry is that no one can ever learn at all. So there's always more to learn, which is essentially job security for us. So with all of that in mind, this is the year to, to get involved with us. If you do want to get involved, uh, get on a podcast or partner with us for a webinar, uh, make a video with us, whatever it is, let's do it. Uh, email me at contact at oilfoodbasics.com. And either way, uh, this is the year to stop putting things off. So I'm, I'm guilty of this and uh, I'm working through my own list here to, to get back on top. But Anyways, uh, so many topics to, to cover and odds are that you guys can contribute greatly uh, to our platform. So if you're out there listening, definitely reach out. I'd love to have you uh, on the podcast or whatever avenue is most fitting for your content. So second, um, I want to encourage you guys not to forget about all of our existing content. So we've got 86 other podcast episodes for you to listen to, dozens of courses, again, that focus on many faucets of the industry dozens of YouTube videos and, and so much more. And on the core side of things, I've mentioned this on the last couple episodes of the podcast, just want to hit on again, we've released a killer deal. So literally you can get access to all of our courses, hundred percent, all every single course on our site for literally $20 a month. Um, so that's a steal um, as basically, I think every single course, honestly, if you buy it alone is, is already over that mark. So literally a steal guys, but what we're trying to do is get everybody on board. We've got a whole lot more to come and this is only the beginning for us. So as the theme of this goes, let's stop waiting and sign up and learn something new. So you can hardly order a pizza for, for $20. So <laughs> learn something and, uh, jump on our platform. We'd love to have you. And one more thing. Um, so I'm starting the hunt for interns soon. And so if you know of any ambitious students or perhaps you're one yourself listening to the show, contact oilfoodbasics.com is how to reach out to me and how to get on my radar. I'd love to, to get my internship pool from uh, folks who are already familiar with the platform. It saves me a lot of steps, a lot of steps of, of doing like a formal recruiting process. So looking for interns, uh, spring and summer, especially the summer term. So definitely reach out. I'd love to, to have a conversation with you. So enough small talk. Uh, I wanted to get that out of the way though. Thanks for sitting through that. So joining me today is Rob Schaub. 
He is the VP of Special Projects at Gyrodata, and I'm, he's also joined here by Stephen Forrester, who is Content Development Manager also at Gyrodata. So, so how are you guys doing today? Doing very well. Thank you, Derek. Let me <laughs> just correct you real quick. I, my title is actually officially now Operations Technical Support Manager. All right. <clears throat> I, I did hold that title and several others at Gyrodata. But I just wanted to clear that up for the record because I went on LinkedIn a while back and, and changed that, but obviously it didn't get pushed out. So, <laughs> Yep, gotcha. Well, that's that's typically where I pull my titles from, so <laughs> for my guests. But anyways, glad to glad to have you. And like I said, we got we got Steven on here too, who does a lot of content uh, writing and, and all of that for what World Oil and I don't know how many other publications. You're like you're like all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Thank, yeah. Thanks for having me, Derek. Yeah, I, I definitely try. Uh, you know, the industry publications, the the big ones, whether it's yeah, World Oil or you know, Journal Petroleum Technology, E and P. My kind of my kind of shtick is you know, work with uh, engineers and product line folks and SMEs like Rob to uh, find out what we're doing and uh, you know, catalog the stories of our success and new technologies and. Uh, put them out there to a broader audience in a, in a way that is, you know, more compelling than just a list of numbers and facts, but uh, retains kind of the technical integrity of, of the, of the content while, you know, serving a, a business purpose and helping us to, you know, help people understand yeah. what it is we do and, and why they, why they should care. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> happy to be here. Uh, th thanks for having us. Absolutely. And we'll look forward to, to sharing and learning more about this topic also. So I guess we'll, we'll start with Rob here. Kind of tell us a little bit about your background and, um, you know, what, so I guess your, your former title of special projects, you know, what, what was that? You know, what, what all cool stuff have you worked on here and just kind of catch us up to, to today? Okay. Well, let me just start out, I guess. Uh, so my background is electronics. I went to the Institute of Electronic Science at Texas A&M University. And my first job uh, after I graduated there was uh, at a little company called Dresser Atlas, which was later swallowed up by Baker Hughes. And I held that job for nine months and experienced my first downturn. <laughs> <clears throat> so that was kind of a, a bad way or bad note to start it out. But fortunately, uh, a coworker of mine that I met and became good buddies with uh, found a, a job at a little company called Gyrodata that was a startup uh, during the midst of a downturn. And I was fortunate enough to get an interview uh, and get hired on with them. And that was in January of 1983. So <clears throat> I've been in with Gyrodated pretty much my whole adult life. Uh, and I've seen lots of ups and downs, mm -hmm. held a lot of different titles. I started out working on uh, actually laying out circuit boards on a light table uh, and working with uh, the engineering department. Uh, finalizing the electronics for this gyro that we had purchased from a company out of California that was an aerospace company that sold these gyros to the United States military for missile guidance. So that's how it all kind of got started for me. And uh, studying electronics, I had no idea I would ever end up in the oil field. <laughs> but it was wonderful being wined and dined by the people that were out there at the time mm. uh, because th there was such a high demand for people. Uh, it was great. Uh, so I got a job close to home here in Houston. Uh, like I said, I uh, thought it was going to be my dream job and I was there for nine months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, <clears throat> I moved over to Gyrodata. Uh, and like I said, I've been there uh, pretty much my whole adult life. 
1986, there was a downturn. I got let go and I was gone for 14 months and I had five jobs. Times were hard. I got rehired back and I've been there ever since. And, and, uh, I've loved every minute of it. The people are wonderful. Uh, you know, I mean, we've just been a tight knit family for a long time. Uh, we've had our ups and downs, uh, but I'm still here, here. So I think that's, uh, proof that it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty, pretty incredible story. Um, and how long you've been with the, the company. And I guess, um, a lot of us are probably familiar with, with gyro data, especially if you've ever done anything, um, especially on the well service side or in, in drilling or, um, those types of roles. But for those who aren't familiar with, with gyro data, Real quick pitch, you know, what, what is, what does Jardata focus on? Where, where do they fall into place in the industry? So our core business has always been running inertial grade rate gyros, uh, basically instruments that a spinning mass that references the earth's rotational velocity. Uh, so we're measuring earth rate, which is a, a stable platform. Unlike a magnetic, uh, MWD tools that's measuring magnetic North, uh, that has a lot of anomalies. It's diurnal. It's moving. <clears throat> it's affected by a lot of uh, variable things in the in the BHAs. Uh, can be affected by crustal anomalies. So there's a lot of variables there. Uh, magnetometers are great packages, but that's been our core business uh, for 40 years. Uh, okay. We did have a directional drilling company. We owned a rotary steerable, uh, which uh, have both been spun off now, and we decided just to. To stick with the core business, uh, and that's running uh, high-grade gyros. Gotcha, gotcha. And just for a little bit more perspective to gyros, uh, where do they come into play here in the industry? So where they came into play was uh, there was a study by Wolf and DeWart, a couple of gentlemen in the early 80s, and I believe they published that paper in 1980, uh, about uh, the inadequacies of survey measurements. Now you have to understand that uh, conventional gyros, which is basically a spinning mass, but it, it can't find north. Uh, it works off the principle of inertia. So once it gets up to speed, you uncage it or uh, allow it free to gimbal and uh, around uh, its two axes, it will hold its alignment uh, in a plane of space, right? So you can sight this thing to a known direction and then run it. And it's very complicated because it was a film-based system. You, it took pictures and then you had to develop the film. It drifted, you had to take into account drift curves. So <laughs> that was kind of where Gyrodata started was because of the fact that, that the gentleman that started it knew there was inadequacies and there was a gap there mm -hmm. on accuracy. Mm -hmm. People were started to drill deviated wells, uh, I say deviated wells, they, were, they were certainly weren't horizontals back then, <laughs> but they were drilling deviated wells and they wanted to know even when they were walking on them and they might end up four or 500 feet off mm -hmm. uh, vertical, where did that well go with a high degree of accuracy? That's where the spin and mass came in. Uh, and that's something that uh, gyro data as a company, uh, we've invested back into it in the technology. With the advent of the GPS system, uh, people that manufacture gyros uh, for guidance systems, uh, they didn't really see the need to manufacture instruments of the caliber that we needed with the temperature, uh, the accuracy, and the size. So it was very difficult for us a few times through our uh, uh, careers, right, 
trying to source these instruments to the point where we had to actually build them in-house. And now that it's actually gone from spin and mass to solid state technology, something that we've been working on. I know uh, I've said 12 years now for probably a couple of years, so it's probably been 14, but it's taken, uh, it took probably 12 years or 11 years before we were actually able to get a sensor that was accurate enough and sensitive enough to measure earth rate. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. So and I think we, we've even done a, a podcast here previously with, with gyro data specifically talking about more of the history of, well, I believe it was the gyro uh, itself and, and how that has progressed through the years. So Steven's shaking his head. Yes. So I feel good about that, <laughs> but, um, well, thanks for that. Thanks for that background there. So real quick on, on, on Steven, um, again, we're just kind of covering backgrounds real quick and then we'll, we'll dive here into, into talking about, uh, the well bores. Um, but Steven, so your background, you've had a little bit of a non-traditional route to your, to the oil field. Just wanted to get you to hit on that real quick and uh, what your experience has been with coming in. So actually, both of you kind of had a little bit of a non-traditional introduction to the oil field. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my my educational background was as far from engineering as, as you could imagine. I'm a, I have a, a bachelor's degree in English and a master's degree in English literature. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a reader and a writer uh, at heart uh, with the U of H. And yeah, I, I, you know, I've, I've been in the service, uh, the food service industry, hospitality for almost 10 years at that point, you know, primarily waiting table, a little bit of floor management, kind of basic stuff. And it, it obviously wasn't going anywhere. It just paid the bills and paid for my education. And uh, I, I had this early kind of interest or fascination with oil and gas because my dad was in it. And he was uh, working for uh, M.I. Swaco at that point, which was, uh, you know, come from a long line of companies, kind of like Rob, where he'd started at Magabar and, uh, you know, the, the 80s and worked through all the iterations of this company his entire career and was where he was. And so I kind of I liked the idea of that and I liked the industry and it paid well and all the good stuff that you hear about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my first my first desk job, I started working for a company called Lloyd's Register. Uh, we, the company was actually a Marine, you know, Marine classification society for, for sea vessels, but they had acquired two companies that did, uh, you know, that worked in the oil and gas space, primarily with inspections and certifications of blowout preventers and other pressure control equipment. So, you know, we'd send surveyors out, uh, to, to, you know, offshore platforms and rigs and, and on land, and they would inspect the BOP and we'd get all the documentation back to Bessie or whoever it was going to. And. Um, it was, it became this huge business overnight for them. I mean, they bought the two companies and the revenue, you know, was, was on, on track to exceed Marines in the first year. It was unbelievable Mm -hmm. right at the kind of, you know, end of that crazy boom before 2014, 2015, right. in 2013. And so I was there about a year, um, you know, we're just working on, uh, it was basically technical editing getting these reports in and then I would help rewrite them and edit them and make them look nice and, and more readable, more approachable uh, before they got sent off to the client. Uh, after that, I moved on to national oil Varco where I was for five years. Uh, I started in what was called then called dynamic drilling solutions, which was kind of like a little startup within NOV where they brought together some legacy, uh, some legacy equipment under like Martin, you know, Martin Decker taco and, some kind of old brands that had a lot of market equity and then a bunch of new things around drilling optimization and drilling automation uh, and drilling dynamics analysis. So it was kind of 
how do we bring all this stuff together to form a new business and, and pioneer new things and, and draw on the power of the old brands while also building this new brand. So that was kind of my task and hmm. helping them through that with writing papers and articles and case studies, whatnot, and, you know, work through that, uh, that, that time at NOV about two years in moved to corporate. Uh, we had a big reorg as, as often happens with these large companies. And yeah. so I got shifted to corporate and I basically did the same thing. They just said, so, uh, you're going to just do it for the whole company now. Uh, have fun, you know, yeah. <laughs> your time to shine, buddy. Uh, so, I started uh, started there uh, in corporate and basically did the exact same thing for every business in the company of which there were, you know, more than 20. So it was uh, pretty, pretty challenging. Got to learn a lot, got to dip my toes into things like investor relations, uh, working with, you know, Clay Williams and Jose Bayardo kind of at yeah. the C-suite and got to do some cool stuff with podcasting and interviewing and, you know, same with editorials and kind of planning out what our content looked like, the strategy mm -hmm. around that. So uh, great, great job, great company, you know, no, no uh, nothing bad to say there. And then, yeah, no, November, 2019, I made the, I made the jump uh, to uh, what I saw was a better opportunity at Gyrodata with a friend of mine who uh, hired me on, uh, who's actually no longer with us, but, but I, you know, I went over and started working for her and uh, yeah, it's been, it's been great since a lot of the company, like Rob said, I you know, the people are phenomenal. It's uh, quite a change going from a organization of 40,000 with a, you know, 10, 10, $20 billion revenue to a company that, you know, has five or 600. That's just the culture is so, so dramatically different. And yeah, I've been lucky enough to, you know, keep writing and keep learning and get published. And, you know, thankfully the companies I've been at have, uh, they've been okay with me writing these things and being a bylined <laughs> author, which is, <laughs> which is not common, right? I mean, it's, yeah. you don't see uh, non-technical folks being able to be bylined and listed often. It's not a, yeah. not a very common thing. So I've been very blessed in that regard to build up a portfolio and, you know, my company is recognizing the value of having something that's very well written and, uh, you know, actually presented in, uh, you know, a compelling way instead of just, you know, boring, just boom, 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 the sentences one after the other mm -hmm. presenting, you know, information. It's uh, actually something that can tell a story. So yeah, written a lot, done some great interviews, been on some podcasts, you know, I do some freelance stuff here and there. I'm with oil and gas global network on the side, uh, you know, with some, they're a big podcasting mm -hmm. group. So I help write articles to complement their podcasts. Uh, so I just started doing that late last year. So Oh, wow. Yeah, and all, all with my English degree. So nobody ever, uh, nobody ever thought this was yeah. going to happen. Well, and that's I'm, that's one of the interesting things about uh, the show is I have the the guests on is that every everybody has a little bit of a different path into it, and uh, there's a lot of non traditional paths into it, or what you would think would be non traditional. Uh, but at some point, all these non traditional just becomes the norm. <laughs> but yeah. so if you want in the industry, you can uh, definitely get in it at some point uh, through enough persistence. No, things might be a little tough right now, but uh, things are looking up especially in some areas so anyways with all that aside i'm, I'm very glad to have you guys uh, both here on the show and uh let's start talking a little more about uh, the well bores so uh rob can you kind of set set up the perspective here you know what's going on with uh these well bores just as as these rigs are, are drilling the well right and, and we're surveying them or whatever we're doing on, on site um, where does the, the problem come into play here with, with these wells being deviated, deviated? Well, I guess if you look uh, historically, uh, you know, they started out with uh, roller cone bits, right? Packed assembly, they go in, they try to drill these straight holes. 
Um, they actually, uh, we've gone into a lot of wells. I got to tell you, Derek, that, that are, were drilled 40, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And they might be deviated some, but they're pretty straight, right? Because they didn't mash these things in the ground. There, I'm sure there was a, a, a sense of urgency, right? Because time is money. Always has been mm-hmm. uh, when you're operating a drilling rig. But as time has gone by, uh, what I've seen is that, you know, we went from typical rotary table, uh, Kelly, uh, mm-hmm. drilling to mud motors, uh, a little more aggressive mud motors, PDC bits, really aggressive mud motors. <laughs> so they can drill these holes really fast now. Oh yeah. Right. And that's the whole, uh, nature of the beast, right? Time mm-hmm. is money deeper, cheaper. Uh, but what happens and what I've learned uh, over the last several years, looking at it uh, from a couple, couple different vantage points, one being on the production side of it, mm-hmm. uh, because we were always kind of a company that went to the drilling people. And then after time went on, I remember having a conversation with somebody before we ever had a service that we refer to as micro guide, where you can look at the well in three dimension. Mm-hmm. And, and, but we have data that we could look at every foot. And what did that tell you? It's kind of t- hard to interpolate that because you get a lot of noise. You can look at dog leg, but it's spiky. Uh, uh, it can tell you some information, there's no doubt, but it doesn't give you the whole picture. So uh, from that, and like I said, uh, with the advent of, of uh, drilling wells, and I remember uh, Jim Oberkirker, IADD, sent a thing out a few months ago. And he said, when I first started in the oil field, he said, if you drilled, a, uh, put a more than a three degree dog leg in a well, you got run off. <laughs> he said, now, if you can't put an eight degree dog leg in a well, they run you off. <laughs> right. So <clears throat> with the advent of horizontals, they want to, they want to get down. They want to get horizontal as quick as possible. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, uh, a lot of times they have the slide rotate issues. Um, even rotary steerables sometimes can have issues. They can build these fairly quickly, but when you're doing that and you get knocked off a little bit, they bring them back on fairly quick and it, ca- it causes these d- micro dog legs, right? And, and torque and drag is a big issue. It's been a topic for many years. Um, I think that uh, we were kind of instrumental in, in bringing it all to light uh, with, with our microguide analysis where we can actually show you in a three dimension, the geometry of your wellbore. Mm-hmm. And so people were kind of like, wow, I've had people say, you know, you remember this project we were on uh, like 18 years ago in the Gulf of Mexico. He said, I, this one engineer told me, he said, I knew that this, that's exactly what was going on. And he goes, but I couldn't convince anybody that it was extremely torturous the way mm-hmm. they had drilled that well. And that's what's given us all our problems with our casing. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, uh, you know, my take on it and my experience uh, through the years. And plus, we used to drill a lot bigger holes. Uh, in a lot of cases, they drill uh, more sizable holes. Now, a lot of the wells that are being drilled on land, uh, you know, they're setting seven, seven to five eighths surface casing. A lot of times they're drilling, they're putting five inch casing all the way down the well bore. Um, that gives you a lot more uh, or less usable ID, I should say, right? So it's more critical that you, you take a look at what you're doing and try to drill as straight a hole as you can. 
And I'm not saying that the, the drillers don't always do a good job. Sometimes when you get out in these long laterals uh, with the tortuosity and the deviations up and down swings left and right, mm-hmm. you're creating a lot of friction. So when you're trying to push and float this casing out there, it can give you issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah I, I'd really just add, you know, to add, I mean, um, you know, to, to compliment what Rob said, I think really what we're seeing, or at least what I've seen and some of the stuff I've reviewed at jar data, I mean, what happens is this is a consequence of, you know, that drill faster mentality, right. Of just wells for, drilling purposes are being defined by a performance metric that just says ROP is king, mm-hmm. you know, get, get it, get it to the, get it to TD as fast as you can. Uh, and let's move on to the next one. And when the driller does that, uh, he or she probably gets a pat on the back and it's like, Hey, you finished that thing really fast. Great job. Let's do it. Let's go on. And uh, that's, that's problematic because it doesn't take into account what happens mm-hmm. a- afterward. Mm-hmm. And, Mm-hmm. So that, that issue has kind of, you know, been, been permeated throughout the industry. I mean, I even remember one of our advertising uh, campaigns to NOV was around IntelliServe, which was wired drill pipe. And one of the taglines for that was drill faster. <laughs> and that was the whole marketing mm-hmm. message was mm-hmm. if you have wired pipe and hence you have real-time telemetry, so you get real-time drilling data and, and dynamics information, you can just blaze this thing ahead. Mm-hmm. And and you see that in uh, on LinkedIn and social media where a lot of companies and heck, we were guilty oh, yeah. of it too. When we had our directional drilling division, you know, they'll put mm-hmm. up these posts about we broke the foot per hour, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, and then the next day we broke our own record or we right. broke the <laughs> directional company's record. And I no, swear I saw one the other day, I think it was uh, Bico, uh drilling tools and they put up something where, they had, you know, drilled the same old story about you know, they drilled a record curve and lateral and a, you know, a mile a day type thing. But yeah. it was like, it was more than that. They they had something like 450 feet per hour on this, on this, uh, you know, BHA. <laughs> and it was just like, okay, that, you know, I mean, and that makes a great social media post, right? But at what cost afterwards? What is that? What does that look like when it's done? And, and you've drilled mm-hmm. ahead, uh, you know, almost a thousand feet. Uh, in a couple hours, like that's, that's mm-hmm. just incredible. And so, but somebody was really proud of that. <laughs> when afterwards they're like, man, this is incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll probably find out later that uh, this, this isn't perfect. And like Rob said, not, not that anybody's incompetent or, you know, right. not intelligent. It's just a, a problem where these kind of drilling and completions disciplines are so segregated mm-hmm. and uh, you know, not seen as working together. And how do you bring, how do you bring those two together in a more collaborative, you know, integrated approach to where mm-hmm. they cut, they work, they work together. John Clegg wrote an article in JPT about that topic where he said, you know, we, isn't it worth spending a little more money up front mm-hmm. to drill a better well, a higher quality well, which is really the main focus of what, you know, what we're doing is spend a little more money, get a higher quality well, and then avoid all these issues with production and, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all that later. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I know definitely there's definitely a, a bit of a paradigm here too. Cause I mean, what, when prices are so low and as they've been since really, I don't know, at least the last five or so years, really, um, you're in this zone where you want to spend as little money as you can. And oftentimes that means, you know, drilling faster and whatnot. And, and again, not to, not to bash drilling or anything like that, but, uh, 
really getting, I think, a, a good perspective of, of what the issue here is. But but do want I do want to clarify a couple of things. And obviously, you know, deviations part of the well, <laughs> part of the well plan as we get down and as we get horizontal and hit our target zones. One thing it's important to note, especially if um, someone hasn't wor- really worked drilling or even reservoir geology, some of these target zones um, that these directional drillers and, and, and this, these rig crews are targeting is literally 10 feet or less. Um, so, you know, it's very easy to get out of that, out of, of that, out of that zone and try to make a correction back to it. So that's kind of, you know, where all this is coming into play. I do want to get a couple, a little bit of clarification though, for our audience, Rob, you talked about deviations. You talked about, um, tortuosity. You talked about dog legs. Can you just hit briefly, you know, what's the distinction between these and, and what, what's good and what's bad, you know, like, like at what point is, is a dog leg bad? Um, just kind of help give us a little bit more of that perspective. <clears throat> so, well, to give you an idea of dog leg, it's something that's been used for years to measure basically kinks in your well, right? It's a measure of changes in your well bore based on inclination and azimuth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's, it's very usable. Uh, typically, the problem is, is that with drilling surveys, they've been historically 92 feet, right? An average stand. And a lot of anomalies happen between there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's dogleg, and it can be very useful. And you can look at it, but a lot of times when you look at dogleg, you have a slide and a rotate pattern. When a directional driller is building an angle, when he starts rotating, uh, gravity is going to tend to pull that bit down. Mm-hmm. So he's going to have to point that bent housing up and he's going to have to slide to get his angle back. Right. And depending on where you take that survey during that slide rotate pattern is going to change all the dynamics of uh, mm. the, the dog leg in the well, what you actually see compared to what really is there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and uh, which they've done that for years and that's, you know, it's sometimes it's like if you don't have a really good rotary steerable that's going to look and see where it's at and make corrections as it goes, mm-hmm. uh, which we used to have. And, and had we still had that today, you know, I tell you, it's a great tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't, we didn't really have towards until the end one that could build a curve really well, but we could hold a straight section for sure. We could build a tangent at one degree uh, as opposed to kicking a well off it at uh, 500 feet, nudging it over which is a, a, a production guy's nightmare, right? Especially mm-hmm. if you're going to go to rod guides, because if you do that towards the surface, now you've got all that weight of the rods and the fluid below it. And as you pull it up, your side force goes, uh, spikes way up up there. So you have problems. So there's all these things that are happening, the dynamics of it. Uh, and, I, and so that's kind of the dog leg side of it. And I remember being in a meeting one time and, and I was invited by production and they said, well, we're going to have some drilling guys in there. They've invited themselves. And I said, well, that's fine, <laughs> right? And they kind of started getting a little bit defensive. And I said, well, yeah. you know, let me just make it perfectly clear that I'm not here to point fingers at you guys mm-hmm. because I know how much information you're getting, right? You're drilling a well and you're looking at maybe 150 data points, right, over, over the, the course of this well bore. And I said, we're going in there and we're looking at uh, literally a few hundred thousand data points mm-hmm. going through. We're, we're looking at it like it under a microscope, mm-hmm. right? Because we're getting that much information. 
the bad thing is that we're getting that much information <laughs> after it's been drilled. Yeah. And then you, like I said, you can drill this well and they geo steer a lot of these things. So like you were saying, you're in the formation. Oh, we're coming up. We're losing it. We got to drop back mm -hmm. in it. We're getting low. We're coming up. So you've got this porpoising effect that everybody knows about and been talking about for a long time as well. And <clears throat> you can't see that. Um, mm -hmm. Now, people are actually starting to use continuous ink and as, uh, which I've actually gotten some information on wells that we've actually pumped down uh, through horizontals and done some comparison. And in some cases, they mimic it pretty good. And in other cases, uh, there's a lot that's lacking there still, hmm. right? Okay. You've got two known points and then you're averaging in between it and you get a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that because we had a rotary steerable that was, uh, had a magnetic package in it that was taking a, a data point uh, every 90 seconds. And so we had lots and lots of information in these uh, magnetic instruments stored. And then to go look at it, you've got all this noise that you got to filter out. Hmm. So it's a challenge, but people are working on it. Uh, and we've been working on it as well, but, uh, we're not there yet. I don't think in a drilling mode to actually be able to, to knock all that stuff out. And then, like I said, you drill a hole and the drilling guys might've done a fantastic job mm -hmm. getting it all the way out into the, uh, the lateral. And then they get this, uh, other anomalies happening. And then when they go push the casing out, then you get hel some helical or sinusoidal buckling, buckling into the casing. And the production guys are going to have issues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like it's like, like a never ending problem, but, uh, <laughs> it kind of is, but it, one thing I'll give, uh, a few companies that we've been working with for years, uh, when I'm, I'm sure that you're actually very familiar with, <laughs> but they've actually taken a stand and, and some guys took it on early, uh, when we first came out with this and they actually went and started talking to the guys in drilling and said, Hey, and the police uh, completions guys and said, why don't we collaborate on this? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you guys are giving us some really ugly wells and they're going, no, we're not. But at the end of the day, they sat down and started talking and then working out the different issues and looking at it and saying, what can we do to mitigate this? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people are headed in the right direction, which, you know, being an employee of Gyro, they didn't have a service that was called MicroGuide. Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of a, a double-edged sword, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, because we're showing people what's going on, which could help them remedy the problem, which would mm -hmm. decrease in us showing them. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm I'm curious. You you mentioned continuous continuously getting inclination azimuth data as as, as, as we're drilling the well uh, with, with some of the tools now, I guess. How useful actually is that to uh, the driller? You know what I mean? Like, even if you are getting it instantaneously, is it still within controls where you can adjust that and, and kind of smooth everything out? Or is it almost it's like, well, that foot's already drilled, you know, even as it is? So, well, it depends on the, on the different systems and, and obviously with MWD systems, especially pulsed ones, right? Mm -hmm. You've got a, a frequency limitation. Mm -hmm. How many bits of information can I send up uh, every second? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> they're only getting snapshots of this periodically. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of it, then afterward, they can download this information and then they can post-process it uh, to mm -hmm. better look at it. 
so they're working on that and they're working uh you know i'm here people are looking at uh algorithms downhole to try to uh, to filter some of this noise out and stuff mm-hmm. and like i said i've seen some of this information and it's come a long way since people started talking about it you know mm-hmm. 10 15 years ago uh but uh i still haven't seen where it's it's mitigating all the problems but yeah. it's better than nothing for the drillers at least okay. it's something to go on right gotcha <laughs> All right, so we kind of talked a little bit about the the issue here and kind of how it's occurring. What, how, how are you seeing this affect, you know, the other disciplines? So you mentioned, you know, rod rod string earlier, right? But let's kind of expound upon that. How's it affecting just operators in general now? So operators in general, I think a lot of them have actually seen the value in what we do. And they're able to mitigate a lot of their issues uh, based on just MWD information. Uh, I process a lot of this data for, for different people and I'll do comparisons based on just the, the data from the, mm-hmm. the drilling uh, software. You know, there's a lot of places, Derek, that uh, they don't have to, to start recording data till they're about 2000 feet. Mm. So they've missed the top 2000 feet. <laughs> of information on their wellbore, which for rod guides is one of the most critical parts. So by having this one foot data that we have and analyzing it versus the MWD, uh, we're able to show them where the side forces, uh, the anomalies in that are completely different in some wellbores. Some places they miss it completely. Other places we show where uh, it's a magnitude of uh, order higher than what they anticipated that it was. So people are, uh, a lot of people have actually started taking this information that, that we're giving them and utilizing it. It's something that's been hard to actually quantify for a long time because when you do this, if they work in a well over every six months or every eight months uh, and you provide them more information and they change the design of the rod guides uh, and maybe some of the tubing joints, different variables, right? Well, you until it's mm-hmm. past that six or eight month point, you don't know what, what it's, the success is going to be. Mm-hmm. And so many people have moved around over a period of time that when you go to catch up with these people and say, hey, what about this well we did? What about that well? And it's like, well, you know, I'm not, that's not my well anymore. And so it's frustrating because mm-hmm. we've, we've only had a, a handful of people that have you know, said, hey, yeah, check this out. Right? So for us, for Stephen especially, because he wants to – write about all this stuff and say, check (laughs) this out, you know, look what we've done. And we're know we're doing, we know we're doing good. It's just sometimes to quantify it and get people to share that information can be tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've had some good, uh, you know, some, some, some challenges for sure, because it is, it is difficult to come back around after the fact and quantify things and, kind of like Rob said, a lot of times, you know, even if we can help a company remedy the problem, we're identifying a problem in the first place, which people, you know, get scared about, or it might, it might reveal something that they, uh, that doesn't make them look good or that, you know, right. they, they, they were, they were, they were okay with nobody knowing. Yeah. Uh, but we've had some notable successes. I mean, one, I, you know, one I always like to bring up is we wrote a paper with, uh, with YPF, uh, you know, down in, in South America. And they, uh, you know, they co-authored an article with us about uh, how they had used microguide in uh, some of their highly deviated 
uh, you know, highly torturous wells and, and what's called the Aguada Toledo uh, formation or field. And one of, one of the cool things that I, you know, I'll bring up and sometimes we'll, you know, we'll put it on LinkedIn or whatever, but mm-hmm. I mean, they had, uh, they basically did a three, you know, a three well kind of project with us. And the first well was really the, the killer one because going into that well and, and, you know, props to the team in, in Latin America for, for, you know, spearheading this. But when they went into the well, uh, YPF was averaging, I think it was something like 65 days between each intervention um, and, and mm-hmm. constantly needing to go in because of issues with, uh, you know, with the uh, rod and tubing damage. Mm-hmm. And they basically said, if we have to have two, if we have two or more interventions per year, uh, it's like a problem well that, that needs to be, uh, you know, researched and identify what the issue is. So they found that there was, uh, you know, the damage was kind of, isolated in an area about a 200 meter area uh which in that area there were these hidden dog legs uh which hadn't been identified before and uh you know there was there was a lot of uh uh there was a lot of like extra mineral around the well that was causing some kind of issues with the data and so the their mwd surveys weren't correlating with you know, the actual areas of wear because of that issue. Mm-hmm. So we went in, we ran a gyro, uh, you know, to get the microguide data, figure out the well's trajectory, torch velocity, uh, everything of that nature. And, you know, found out where the problem area was, helped them identify the issue and determine a solution. And, uh, you know, after they, after YPF went in and made these improvements, uh, they had a massive boost in efficiency and uh, in, in equipment life and, you know, reduction in the failure rate. And when we wrote the article, which was, I think, in uh, November or October of last year, mm-hmm. that well had been online for 500 days with no interventions. So, uh, you know, uh, what is that, a six or seven fold increase uh, in, you know, the pump life, right? So that that's kind of the that's like the big success where you can identify something like that and, and really change, uh, you know, how they're doing something. And, and then the financial and operational impact uh, can be can be significant from having that type of data, which they wouldn't have otherwise. So yeah. uh, that's that's a pretty good one. OK. So, yeah, so, so basically kind of summarize some of the issues you guys are talking about is it sounds like a lot of it is on artificial lift. So in the production side of things, whenever you've got something like rod lift as, as I think you both alluded to at this point, as well as, you know, ESPs. I know you guys had some material on ESP failures. Um, yeah, just those types of artificial lift systems where something moves down hole, um, as an element of that system, uh, that's where we're seeing a lot of issues just because of what kind of, uh, tightness and the tortuosity and, um, things rubbing on each other, <laughs> right? Rob, is that, Good way of uh, explaining that simply. <laughs> no, that's that's exactly correct. So, uh, case in point, I had a client yesterday uh, that called, and and we we've, we've started doing a lot of work with them. Right, mm-hmm. they've seen the value in it, and it was the first well where I saw some helical uh, and some sinusoidal buckling going on, and I'm like, uh-oh. uh oh. So, but uh, on the side note of that was that uh, there was actually an acceptable place to put their pump hmm. right mm-hmm. so there was a little skepticism about well are you sure that it's really that's happened 
And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm positive, right? Because we, we actually collect data on the in run at 22 hertz, on the out run at 22 hertz. And then we do a weighted average of that to create uh, one data point every foot. So you can look at it and graph it. And yeah, you can see that there's just a little bit of noise that we're, uh, we're picking up as we're running through these well bores mm -hmm. centralized with rollers. Uh, and so we, we filter that out, but it, it doesn't lie when you've got two data sets laying right on top of each other. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, it, was there any indication that you saw? And she said, well, actually, they had issues getting their liner down. And then when they went to, to uh, pull the, the casing back up into tension, the, it, there was a, a, a very large amount of overpull and a lot of friction. So she said it makes total sense. Mm -hmm. And I said... Uh, you know, it doesn't lie. The tool don't lie. It doesn't lie. You know, mm -hmm. it, it tells us what's happening. Yeah. And it's interesting too, on the implications and just, just artificial lift in general. And like, I know from spending a little bit of time on the production side where, uh, you know, you, you do look at, you know, the, the deviation or the summaries, the wellbore diagrams that you have from usually what the rig left you, um, as, as what production engineers are usually looking at and trying to pick the, the spot, you know, with the least deviation or right before it starts getting, you know, into a lot of uh, dog leg severity and all that kind of stuff to set your pumps. But in one of the articles um, that you guys had sent me kind of ahead of time, it even looked like um, with y'all's tool and, and the, the greater uh, clarity, you know, foot by foot even, that they were able to set the pump even deeper in a, a section that wasn't as deviated. And, uh, so that, so there's a lot of potential, potential wins here. And then also, uh, just a little background too on the problems. Um, and again, in one of the papers you had mentioned, um, even having high power draws and, and something. So it's not always just the immediate failures, right? Just having, you know, rods break all the time or whatever it is. Sometimes it's even something subtle that can ultimately have a big, <laughs> big effect on your bottom line, or even, um, you know, if it's something like you could be setting your pump deeper, um, you know, you could be picking up, you know, possibly you know, a couple hundred barrels or, or maybe not quite that much, but you know, de depending on your formation, your well, and what it's capable of, uh, you could be missing the mark there. Anything you want to add to that? No, you're absolutely correct. So like talk about the power draw. If you, if you take a submersible pump, that's 170 mm -hmm. feet long mm -hmm. and you bend it and you put that shaft into a little bit of a bind, that's going to create friction, which means the motor's going to have to draw more current to rotate mm -hmm. at a given RPM. And uh, I'm not, not an expert on it by any means, but I have seen uh, some cost on just one well uh, as far as the uh, electricity goes on a month. And, <clears throat> you know, I could pay for my house for a long time <laughs> for that one oh, month's man. electric bill, right? Because, I mean, these motors are, are extremely high horsepower and draw a lot of current. And... And that's something I don't think a lot of people monitor or they look at it and go, well, yeah, so we're drawing a little bit more current than normal. But I think historically, mm -hmm. it's like, hey, if it's running, it's producing, we're good with it. Right. And but if, I think if you're hitting that, the target or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and maybe it doesn't run as long as it should. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I know that ESP pumps are extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember there was oh, yeah. a panel. And failures are just as bad. <laughs> yeah, failures are just <laughs> having as bad. to replace it and pull it, and that's no easy workover job. <laughs> no, that's right. And the same thing with uh, a beam pump, right? I mean, you've got uh, uh, you've got to look at the uh, gearbox efficiency, the load on the gearbox. 
Well, if you start loading those rods up and putting a lot of side force on them, you're loading the gearbox up. And now mm. your, your card that you're looking at, I was going to say compass card because I'm an old gyro guy. <laughs> but the dyno cards you're looking at, well, all those characteristics start to change a little bit. Your efficiency, mm -hmm. your pump fillage, um, there's a, you know, a huge array of things that can happen mm -hmm. due to having a little bit of deviation in your wellbore. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, definitely a very interesting uh, discussions around this. And I'm, I'm curious now, so you guys have mentioned microguide a, you know, a handful of times now, so kind of alluding to what we're getting at. Uh, talk us a little bit through about what it specifically is. I have questions about, you know, I mean, I'm assuming it's a tool. Is it a tool or a software? When is it ran? Uh, what can it be run with? Is this something you do always after the fact? Can you run it with, you know, BHAs as you drill? Uh, I mean, like, just put this in perspective. What is this overall? And then we can talk a little bit about how it's, how it's done in a sense. So microguide is a software package okay. that we actually take data <clears throat> that is run after the fact uh, to do an analysis, a three-dimensional analysis of the tortuosity in a wall bore. Okay. So we break it down. We can look at it. If you've got a device that's 176 feet long, mm -hmm. a four-inch pump, and you want to put it at a certain depth, we can run an analysis on that and look at that specific depth and say, hey, it's good to go. Or we can look at it and say, well, you know, you're going to have more than a two degree bend, which means your pump manufacturers going to tell you that's a bad spot. Yeah, they're not going to be happy. <laughs> they're not going to be happy. Yeah. Uh, and, and when you're getting pushing these pumps down, we see a lot of really tight spots. Mm -hmm. And you can see some dog leg, obviously, with some kinks in a wellbore that you can look mm -hmm. at and say, okay, well, I'm going to have issues. But sometimes there's a, a little bit more involved in it. So we can uh, tell a customer and say, you know, once you start passing this depth, you need to start adding cable clamps because uh, to mitigate cable damage, right? Uh, so ESP, or, uh, right? ESP, yeah. ESP, okay. Yeah, I was talking to an engineer not long ago, and I never knew what a cable cost. And I asked him, I said, just for my curiosity, how much was that cable? And he said that cable alone was about seventy-seven thousand dollars. <laughs> I mean, I know it's a big gauge cable, Derek, but I was like, yeah. holy cow, that's an expensive extension cord. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to know, you damage it going in, now you got to pull it back out, you mm. got to splice it. So that's something else that, that microguide's involved with. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so you're, you're basically, so software, you're running on data that you got after the fact. So is that data that operators typically already have, or is that something that they need to run in? with x tool to get x type of data so that's something that we do with our own our own gyro okay right and uh, we could uh, we could take and run an mwd survey through there and it would come out and rather than having a nice uh tube color-coded tube showing you the effective diameter it would just be point to point like a straight line because there's mm -hmm. enough, not mm -hmm. enough data to, an, to do an analysis on. Okay. Uh, and, and something else that happened uh, before is that we were asked to, to run somebody else's data through our software. <laughs> and <clears throat> we can't quantify uh, the quality of that information. Yeah. Right. So reluctantly we did it one time and there was an issue and we went back and found out that that information wasn't quite as accurate as it could have been. Mm -hmm. So at that point, uh, we just decided that uh, 
if we haven't collected the information, we're not going to process okay. it. And is this, I mean, could they, could we theoretically be getting this data while we're drilling and just running y'all's gyro or? Well, unfortunately not at this point. Uh, like I was telling you, Derek, you know, the MWDs are, they're programming it now where they can get continuous ink and as. Okay. Uh, and they're filtering that information. So theoretically, they, it'll help them to drill a straighter well bore. Mm hmm but once you drill it and you set casing, everything can change. Oh, okay. I got you. That's part of, uh, yeah, it'd be great to be able to do it. And sure, if they've yeah. got some indicators from continuous ink and ass to help the driller uh, to drop the tortuosity in the wellbore and make mm -hmm. it smoother, uh, it's a positive thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha. And so I guess, um, so whenever you guys run gyro down into an already drilled well into its casing i assume or can you do, are you going through i assume the casing are you going through tubing we go through casing typically for esps tubing for rods okay so you can do both and i assume you just use wireline correct okay we can do it on slick line as well we can run it into battery mode we can run it in combination with a bond log a caliper oh, okay uh different scenarios okay to collect that information to save the operator money if, if they've got to kill two birds with one stone if you right. will yeah no definitely and that was another question i had kind of on you know the, this micro guide in, in general and what you guys are all kind of essentially pitching here to to operators um and helping to, to solve some of these issues or at least uh come up with better solutions to to mitigate the issues that they know they have um what what are how do you guys get in the door essentially with the operators before, you know, you, you, you know, you've done work with them and you've got like, look at this, these results or what you've done, but I assume there's a little bit of a paradigm there to, to kind of overcome that, to, to getting in the door with companies. So I guess kind of what, it, what's your approach to, to, to getting in the door? Steven, Steven Forster <laughs> is our approach to get in the door. He throws stuff out there and does a great job at it. <laughs> And, you heard it here first, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's part of it. And another part of it, Derek, is is uh, you know that the that people jump, you know, ship. They go from company to company, and so we've had mm -hmm. instances where an engineer really grabbed onto the concept and really liked it, and moved to, mm -hmm. to a smaller operator. And it's like he's like, "Hey, come over. We need you." Yeah. So it's a lot of word of mouth too, right? Uh, people look at it. They see the value in it. Um, we've had a couple of cases where we've gone out and run inside a casing mm -hmm. for rod guide, doing a rod guide analysis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, they didn't see a smoking gun at the depth they thought it was at. And I said, well, had you, had we run in tubing before you pulled it, it could be that the anchor cut loose. Mm. We had a case in point where we went out and the company wanted to do, uh, kind of an analysis if you will, they had a failure. They pulled the rods out. Then we ran inside the tubing as it was and showed that that tubing on the bottom uh, was helically buckled like crazy. Hmm. And I was told that it was actually put in tension uh, by our <laughs> field hand that ran it. Well, then they replaced the tubing. It was uh, neutral. We ran in it. They set the anchor. They pulled it into 10,000 pounds. Uh, I believe they pulled it into 15 and 20,000 and we ran in each scenario and looked mm -hmm. at it. Right. And the first one I said, well, 
how could you put that in, how'd they put it in tension? And he's like, I don't know. So I called the engineer and he said, well, we didn't put it into tension, Rob. He said, what happened was, is that that beam pumps moving along nice and smooth. And then all of a sudden it just locked up. So we knew we had a problem. So we pulled the rods, you surveyed in it, and you could see it, it's, it apparent, apparently the anchor cut loose all at once. That tubing went shooting up the hole, hung up, and that's what we had. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, and it was, and I mean, you could see it just, Yeah. You know, that two and seven inch tubing in that five inch, five and a half inch casing. Goodness you know, sakes. they were like, that's pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, some of these, you know, some of these case studies that we're doing, and you're seeing, I mean, that that's probably the, you know, the power, the the way to get in with, uh, you know, to start a dialogue is things like that, where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can you're showing these these scenarios where it's just it's just incredible what's happening yeah. <laughs> down home and something that you know you you wouldn't even think of and i mean i you know i'm i was familiar with torque and drag and things like that from from you know earlier writing and whatnot but yeah you know and friction factors and modeling and stuff but some of these things i mean like rob said i mean you're getting you know straight on corkscrewed wells and they're trying mm-hmm. to put a they're trying to put a pump at a spot where you know it needs to be straight and it's actually like just spiraling out of control <laughs> and so you know when you're showing yeah. companies that uh, and I mean, I'm not a salesperson, but I would assume that, you know, when you're presenting these kind of examples and showing them, you know, look, here's what we found. And uh, you you would never know this otherwise. And kind of, as you mentioned earlier, you know, somewhere it's not just equipment damage or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, equipment failure or downtime or, you know, cable costs or whatever. It's also even lost production. Yeah. You know, a pump might go off. And even if it is a very low producing well, I mean, even if it's you know, 600 barrels a day or something. And that goes down to zero. That's uh, mm-hmm. you know, the longer that's down, that, that can add up fast. And so, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll present these things and, and try to help, uh, try to help operators understand, understand that there, there is a problem in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what, what could the problem potentially be and how, you know, how we're the solution and we're, yeah. you know, there, there are, uh, you know, there are other people that, or trying to measure dog leg severity and things like that. But I mean, really micro guide is, you know, it is, it is one of the only, if not the only thing, I mean, that really does what it does. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very, we're very proud of that. At least, I mean, I have nothing to do with inventing it, but I know <laughs> I, I'm proud of it. Right. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And seeing yeah. that, being able to see that I've even seen some reactions of, uh, you know, people I've sent stuff to on social media that have reached out to me, which, is probably their first mistake, you know, <laughs> but, they, but they'll reach out to me. And, you know, I've sent them some of these 3D images and sometimes they're ro- like, we'll have little, you know, videos or, or, or uh, you know, our GIFs that are rotating and mm-hmm. showing the color overlays for the different degree, you know, the severity of mm-hmm. what's happening. And I mean, mm-hmm. people see that and it's just like their minds are blown because they're used to just getting an Excel sheet with a bunch of data points. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden there it is and it's visualized and it's very clear. It's very obvious what's happened and, and why they're having a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. I bet probably a lot of the ways and with, with operators, unless they're super proactive, um, would, would probably be with, with problem wells or like, like we've talked about, you know, ESPs that if they keep on failing or something, I mean, if you, I'm sure running y'all services nowhere near the cost of that work over to, to essentially replace the, or fix an ESP problem as an example. And probably, you know, same with the, anything with the rod, uh, rod lift systems. So 
Um, very interesting uh, product that you guys uh, and software that you guys have uh, built and, and are advocating here for. Um, I appreciate y'all's background and, and expertise in, in this area. Anything else kind of as, as we wrap up here uh, that just definitely want to get out in the, the airspace here before we before we close? Well, I'd just like to tell everybody out in the audience to hang in there, and I think <laughs> things are going to get better. I think COVID's going to go away at some yeah. point, and we'll all be able to go out and go to concerts, have parties together. <laughs> so keep your chin up. Keep moving. Yep. Yeah, echo the, the sentiment of, you know, I mean, being in oil and gas and uh, this – the industry kind of draws you in and I, yeah. I found myself, uh, you know, still here after, you know, going on eight years, despite, uh, some challenges and roadblocks and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say, uh, keep on trucking, be open to not only what you do and what you study, but also to new ideas and kind of new paths that could emerge as this industry is changing, uh, with, you know, the advent of all this digital technology and, you know, data science and, uh, machine learning and AI and things where you could be a petroleum engineer and, and have this amazing amount of knowledge and then <clears throat> transfer that over into something else. If mm -hmm. you know, you're having a problem spot in your career or you want to transition somehow, there's, there's a lot of opportunities and I, I'd encourage uh, people from, you know, students up to your, your normal professionals. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, to get engaged and be active and, and be advocates for what we do. Yeah. Uh, whether it's like me and I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm writing, I'm writing the days away or whether you're out in the field, making the magic actually happen. You know, I'd say, uh, be proud of the work that you do and, uh, the, the critical resource that we provide to, to, you know, to humanity and, and the energy to power people's lives and really take stock of that and, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, be, be uh, excited to go to work every day and, and be an enabler of, you know, our continued progress. Yeah. Very well put. There's a lot of a lot of stress, especially around election and uh, even the months since, and, and stressing science. And it's crazy how much science is in our own industry, and how much um, all these different aspects. Um, every you know everybody has all these different jobs and uh, and and how it all rolls in together. And 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 we don't do a very good job of like you said, kind of advocating for that and proving that we know what we're doing. And uh, we're the best country in the world to, to do this. So, <laughs> a little some bit. of the best, brightest minds in this industry. Yeah. I mean, tr truly, I've you know worked with people across the spectrum, and just unbelievable amounts of, of knowledge and talent, mm -hmm. and and you know, and and doing technical things. I mean, the kind of work that oil and gas you know, professionals are doing uh, is is one of is unparalleled, yeah. except maybe by you know aerospace and a couple other really technical industries. I mean, the concepts and the things we're doing are, it's just not even possible for kind of the average, mm -hmm. you know, person to comprehend what we're doing, which is my kind of, I always go back to how do we, how do we bridge that gap, right? Yeah. How do we help people understand the work that we do and, and, and not just from a technical or sales perspective, but also just of why it, why it matters, why mm -hmm. is it important? And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how, how amazing it is that we can drill, uh, you know, miles into the earth without a, you know, with no kind of GPS or anything and mm -hmm. place a well or within a centimeter of where it needs to be to produce the optimal amount of oil. You know, that that's yeah. insane, right? So how do we, how do we get those stories out and tell them more effectively? Yeah. And like the podcast that you're doing right now, right? That's yeah. just another tool and, uh, you know, in our growing tool belt of ways that we can reach more people. Yeah. 
The hole might be a little crooked, but we'll get it down there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's <you> right. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, it's, it's been great having you on. I appreciate um, y'all sharing your, your, your piece of the industry here with us. And uh, again, just kind of want to hit, hit again on what I mentioned at the beginning. If anybody's uh, listening and wants to get involved and, and share your perspective of the industry or what you're involved with or cool things that you see going on, reach out, contact com. Look forward to hearing with you. And by the way, the episode that we did also with Gyro Data a while back on gyro surveying specifically in, in history, uh, it was called, that was episode number 51 and it was with Chris Hartley. So I'm just throwing that in there uh, for some continued content for you guys. To, to be able to to. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> we appreciate it, Derek. Yep. Thanks, guys, for, for being on. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, keep your head up and we'll all get through this together, guys. We'll catch you in the next episode. Take care.